1042. That's how many pages are in my Bible. And uh, we're going to begin a series on uh, the story of Ruth uh, that I'm entitling Redeeming Love that makes up three pages of those 1,042. Uh, you know, in the Bible there are lots and lots of, of stories. There are lots of different kinds of uh, literature. We have, uh, we have the poetry uh, of the Psalms. We have the epistles, the letters that Paul wrote to the church. Uh, we have the prophets who speak to the people, calling them back to faithfulness in God. And then we also have a historical narrative. Uh, we have storytellers. Uh, the people of God live out a story. And one of the most, I think, to me, significant and touching stories in all of the Bible are these three little pages in Ruth. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the book of the Bible that has the most, uh, the most dialogue as a percentage of any other book. It's just a, a story that people are telling. And it's a story that speaks to us because I don't think that, I think our community, our life is very much like uh, the life of Naomi and Ruth, this, this mother and daughter. And so uh, we're going to journey the next uh, couple of months in, in, this, uh, in this book. So I invite you, if you have your Bible with you, to uh, turn with me to, to Ruth. It's, uh, in my Bible, it's page 222. If you have the same Bible as me, turn right there. If not, find it yourself. It's Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. You may have to search around and look for it a little while because it's, it's not one of those you might miss it if you're just slipping. So would you please stand and for the reading of God's Word. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. This is God's Word for us today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So he set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Father, we ask your blessing upon this reading and hearing of your word that you might accomplish your will in our lives for the sake, for the glory, for the grace of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the first time I ever did a fast, uh, the, it was the first night, and I was really hungry. I was not going to eat anything except for drink water. And I happened to be walking by the television, and I saw a commercial on TV that normally I would have never even noticed or paid attention to. But it was a, a, a Burger King commercial. And it was an advertisement for a croissant you remember the croissant sandwich? I don't know if they sell those anymore. I haven't been to Burger King in probably 10 years. But they sell this croissant sandwich and it had a big sausage patty on there and this like croissant. And the, the sausage was steaming and there was a cup of coffee. At the time, I didn't even drink coffee. And then there was that 
hash brown. And normally I would have never even found that meal appetizing. But because I was fasting, I've been fasting from the beginning of the morning, and it's that first day that really, really gets you when you're the most hungry. I'm talking hungry. So hungry that you would say, i got to have me a sandwich," <laughs> Right? And of course, the tagline of the, of the commercial, I think at that point, was, Are you hungry? And I'm like, Yes! I am hungry for a sandwich." What is it like to fast? What is it like to abstain from food or from drink or from an activity? You know, you're hungry and your thoughts are always going to those foods that you can't eat. But the purpose of fasting is an opportunity to to find where is your life really sustained. It's not by sandwiches. We're sustained by, by God, by the Word of God, by God Himself. He is the one that provides for us. And when that moment appears where you, you want to give in to temptation, when you want to eat something, you say, Lord, help me. Help me to be strong. Help me to be satisfied, not in the things of this world, not in this food, but in you. Fill me up. Satisfy me. And what happens then is that you have a, a closer connection to God. You feel near to Him and you see how the Lord can uh, sustain you in the time of temptation. And so that what happens in the physical realm also happens in the, in the spiritual realm. There's this opportunity for you to grow in grace and that you see that in times of struggle or in times of discouragement or times uh, that are lean, you know that God is going to provide for you. Not just by satisfying your physical hunger, but also satisfying your spiritual hunger. Well, at the beginning of the book of Ruth, we see that says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The people are literally experiencing a physical hunger. We also know that they are living in a time when the judges ruled. Well, if you flip back a couple of chapters, uh, or actually one chapter, Joshua judges Ruth, you learn about what's going on in the nation of Israel at the time. See, the judges ruled at a time when the people of God had already come out of Egypt. So we, we just finished the Ten Commandments, right? So the, the people of God had come out of Egypt. They had been given God's law. And then in the book of Joshua, that story is about the people uh, going into the promised land. God had given them this land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's an abundant land. And yet now, there is a famine there. And the judges were ruling. God provided these uh, judges... Uh, they would be uh, leaders in the community. But after Moses died, you see, uh, Joshua, had, after he had led the people in the promised land, he was very specific about how he wanted them to go into the promised land, how to come into that place. Because he knew that the people of God could be seduced into the depraved and the pagan ways of the Canaanites. He knew that even though he had freed them from slavery, even though he had promised them and provided for them in the desert. Even He had given them His holy word and He had protected them in every way. He knew that they would struggle with temptation. He knew that if they did not drive out the pagan people from their land, they would end up living alongside the Canaanites, trading and intermarrying with them and eventually borrowing their morals and their religious beliefs. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, it clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following Me to serve the other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and He would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of them but that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. You may not remember this, but in, on January 13th or something, the first sermon in the series on Ten Commandments, we talked about that phrase, treasured possession. The people of God are His tre- treasured possession. He didn't want them to be corrupted by the people of that day. So He said to go in and deal with them extremely, significantly. And God had promised victory for them if they were faithful. But defeat and enslavement if they shared their loyalties with other gods. And so the book of Judges, after Joshua, we see Joshua and the the people of God come into the land, but they didn't follow through all the way. And so in Judges, there's this continuing cycle of apostasy or, or disobedience. And then the people of God are oppressed by the foreign peoples. And then they appeal for help. They cry out. They say, Lord, Lord, help us, help us. And then God delivers them ever faithfully. And so during that time, there were endless conflicts and battles with the people that lived around them. And these judges arose. These judges who had great wisdom to lead the tribes. And they were most effective, actually, at warfare. But they also were moral people. And so when a new judge would arise, there was peace for a while. But then another army would would come up and another enemy would would battle them. And so, they also led the people and helped them to conform to the religious pattern. But but they never governed all the twelve tribes at one time. So there was things going on like child sacrifice and prostitution with their pagan neighbors. And so, God said, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And so the famine comes. The land is flowing with milk and honey. It is now a place where there is a famine. In Bethlehem, think about it. It says, in Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem means? mean? It means house of bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. Imagine living in this kind of a culture, an agrarian culture, where you can't just go down to Kroger and get some more bread or some more food. You don't have access to food. 
If the rain stops and the crops don't grow, what are you going to eat? We see, we're introduced to the, this character here, this man named Elimelech. Uh, the word Elimelech means, my God is king. My God is king. But what's interesting is that we see, we learn from the beginning, is that Elimelech is not living as though his God is king because he is now leaving the promised land and going to live among the Moabites. Instead of trusting in the Lord of the universe, the sovereign God of all who makes provision for his people, Elimelech says, I'm going to take my people into the land of Moab. And that's a big deal. Because you see, the Moabites were considered an inferior race of people because they were descended from an incestuous union. In verse 3 of chapter 23 of Deuteronomy, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. In fact, six times in this book, when we hear about Ruth, She's always described as the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. In case you forgot, Ruth is a Moabite. So not only are the people experiencing physical hunger from the famine, but they're facing a spiritual hunger as well. They are not ultimately being satisfied with God. And in their time of struggle, they have turned to these other gods and they become enslaved to them. Elimelech and his lack of trust in the provision of God is, is representative of, of all the people. He epitomizes this oft-repeated line in the book of Judges. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. I guess a society like this is really not a, that all that difficult for us to comprehend or to consider ourselves. It seems like the world that we live in today, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I mean, after all, aren't we the ones that decide what's right and what's wrong? Aren't we the ones that get to pick? Or maybe is it God? Whether it's pursuing pleasure at any cost, or it's redefining God's design for the family, uh, or it's neglecting the poor, or accumulating material possessions, um, the people of our nation, the people of our community, we, you and I, in many ways are doing what is right in our own eyes. We have allowed the idols of the surrounding culture to influence how we live, what we buy, how we treat one another, and what we invest ourselves in. And in so many ways, we are numb to the spiritual hunger we're experiencing. Instead of feasting upon the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are like Elimelech, looking for greener pastures. How many of us, when we struggle, turn to the Lord first? You know, for most of us, we only seek God when we've exhausted every other avenue. Whenever we have any difficulty, we just try our hardest to deal with it. I'll fix the problem. I'll take care of this. And if we get the results we want, then we just ignore God altogether. Instead of looking at struggle and difficulty and pain as an opportunity to grow in grace and to see God's hand working sovereignly in our lives. And it's even harder for us when things are going well. How many of us are only on our knees praying 
when we face difficulty and challenge. And when things are fine, God who? Elimelech should have known that the Lord would provide for him in this difficult time. He should have known that he didn't have to look to anything else. His name means my God is King. He could look to the Lord who was abundance overflowing. Did he fear the famine more than God? See, instead he disobeyed the Lord and he took his own family away from the one who would be able to provide for him. And you see what happens when he gets to Moab is that things get worse. For some unknown reason, he dies. And so do his sons. They die as well. After ten years in Moab, all that they have to show for it is he and his sons have died, leaving three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And you know, what's difficult for us to understand too is that the status of a widow is very different than, uh, than, it, was, than it is today. It's challenging enough to be a widow in our culture where you're alone. You've got to make a way and you've got to figure out how to do things. But there are social networks around us and there's a different culture that we live in. But in that day, if you didn't have a son or a husband, you were in a desperate situation. You couldn't really even work if you were a woman or a widow. She couldn't cultivate land without male relatives that were allowed to inherit it. She needed sons, Naomi, not daughters. And barrenness in that day was considered a disgrace and a divine curse. A childless widow who was too old to remarry was both worthless and vulnerable. And so this is our setting. These three pages... This is what's happening in these three pages. The nation and the people are walking in disobedience. There's a spiritual famine in the land. And Naomi is a childless widow who must care for these other two widows. I mean, the stage is set. What's going to happen? How will it turn out? What is God going to do? How will Naomi respond? Tune in. These next weeks... We're going to be going through and finding this out. What does God have to teach us in this process, though? What is God saying to you as you face a difficult struggle? As you face pain? As you face the challenge and the struggle in your life? See, over the next few weeks, we're going to see a a covenant family that, that sacrifices Uh, that provides for one another in an awesome way, self-sacrificing, giving encouragement to one another, caring for one another, providing a space, a hospitable space for the foreigner, for the immigrant. But in many ways, they're just ordinary people like you and me. After all, they only got three pages here. Three measly pages. But God has a powerful story that He's wanting to tell through them. But I think for us this morning, it, it makes us consider, we've got to, to think through, how do we respond when we face challenging circumstances? How do we face the physical hunger? How do we face the spiritual hunger? How do we face the discouragement, the despair, the struggle? Well, there's three different ways I think that we can deal with these things. And one is we just endure it. Good old stiff upper lip. You just plow through it and you just deal with it. 
It's hard, but that's the way it is. And it's a good old USA work ethic and you just hammer through it and you deal with it. But what happens if we just endure the struggles is that what can happen is that we become embittered. We can get to the end of our lives or the end of the season and just be angry and be frustrated and be hard to deal with. And if you've seen people who are embittered in their life, uh, bitterness can become a cancer and it can transform you into a person that no one wants to be around if you just try to endure it. Another way that we deal with our problems and struggles is we try to escape them. We just try to get out of the way. You know, an escape, of course, comes in all different shapes and sizes. And there are the kinds that we can see that are, that are external, that are obvious when a person turns to drugs and alcohol or they, they run to uh, materialism or they find their life in pornography or in adultery. Those are the big ones that we can see. We all know the dangers associated with those things. But escape can happen in also in subtle ways. It's like avoiding people. Avoiding family members because they're difficult to deal with. Uh, we don't or aren't willing to, to confront others in a loving and gracious way, yes, uh, but because we're not willing to talk and relate in meaningful ways, we just try to escape it. And then what happens is there's division of relationship and little things become bigger things and they become bigger things and eventually you're not talking to somebody for 15 years. We're not willing to, to go and to deal with the struggles. It's like a Limelech. He's more afraid of the circumstance than he is willing to trust in the sovereign God of the universe. So we can try to endure them or we can try to escape them, but I, I think that what we are called to do is to enlist them. To enlist these struggles that we face and trust that God is using the difficult thing that's going on in your life right now. The painful relationship. The uncertainty about the future. The uncertainty or the discouragement about the past. That God wants to use these things in your life right now to show you that He's real to you. That you can trust Him. James says, Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. For the testing of your faith produces endurance, perseverance, and it must complete its work so that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You can't get to maturity or completion unless you're going through a struggle. It's what God is calling us all to do because He doesn't want us just thinking life is fine. He allows the struggle in our life so that we'll get down on our knees and say, Lord, help me through this. I need You, Lord. I know that You're here. I know that You're sovereign, that You're in control, and that You're good. That You're good. See, a test is an opportunity to demonstrate what you know. You know, when you're in school and the teacher says, here comes the test. You're like, oh go through officer training we say there's going to be a test and they go ah but then they perform because they demonstrate all that they've learned when you are experiencing a test it's an opportunity to know and see what God has is doing in your life in the same way when you face, face a faith challenge it's an opportunity not to say look at how great my faith is but say look at how great my God is who is able to sustain me through this struggle through this difficulty it's a chance to take something that's negative, something that's, 
that's, that's bad and turn it into something good. I mean, you consider the oyster. The oyster experiences an irritant. It's, a, it's maybe a grain of sand or some kind of particle that gets down into its shell. And what it does is it takes that little grain of sand or that difficult thing and it turns it into a pearl. Something of great beauty. Something that is, is an adornment that brings beauty into the world. You see, even though Naomi, we see, is in this desperate situation, there's hope. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and had given them food. She heard in the fields of Moab what was going on in the Promised Land. There was so much going on in the Promised Land that it filtered all the way down to Moab that the Lord had visited His people. And the word here for Lord, if you have it in your Bible, it's that lowercase, all caps, it's the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the universe, the One who is faithful. It's this Lord. He has visited His people. When the Lord visits His people, that's a big deal. It could be overwhelmingly positive and glorious and wonderful, but could it be also bring terror to the hearts and minds of the people of God. The Lord has visited His people. And so now she goes because there's hope there. You see, part of Naomi's struggle is that she is a childless widow and she has no one in her family that's left that can support her and encourage her. Without a child, she was without hope. You know, as I was thinking about this reality uh, this morning, at, at uh, like 7 o'clock this morning, I looked across uh, the breakfast table and there's my daughter, Anna Karras, laughing and smiling with oatmeal dribbling down her chin. And I thought about this precious little baby. I thought, a baby is hope. It's, it's, a, it's a belief that God is in some way entrusting us to keep going. That He continues to give us children. That he has entrusted them to us. She's a reminder that God loves us. She's a promise that life is going to go on. That the family will be continued. She represents tomorrow, in a way. And see, when God wanted to reveal His ultimate promise to His people, He sent a baby. He wanted to visit His people in the ultimate sense. To be with them physically, personally, powerfully. He sent a baby. A baby not, that didn't just bear His image, but as Colossians says, that is the image of the invisible God. So the way we know that God is to know this Son, this baby. Even when we face struggle, isolation, famine, our own sin, we remember that God has come to be with us. Even when we're walking in a far, foreign land, when you're walking far, far away in the land of Moab, God has come to visit. He did not stand back and watch us in our struggle, but He came in the form of a baby to pursue us, to, to claim us, and ultimately to redeem us. It's His passionate, self-giving love that gives us hope in the midst of our struggle. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You that You come near to us in the midst of our struggle. I pray that we would be able to know that You're here and as we as we consider and study this book, that God, the, the divine drama that is 
portrayed here with this family. God, may it come to light for us and come alive to us. I pray, Lord, right now for, for the widows in our community. I pray that they would know Your sustaining grace and the love that You have. I pray that they would feel encouraged and cared for and loved by this community. I pray also, Lord, for the childless in our community. God, that may they know that You love them, that You care for them, and they have spiritual children that they can invest in. Father, we thank You for mothers, and we pray that You would help our mothers. We pray for our women as they worship at the women's retreat, that God, You would encourage and bless them. And may we be a people who are welcoming to the stranger. We pray all this in Your holy and precious name. Amen.